Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. Uh, I am Dan Martin and I am joined as ever by my lovely co- I'm a special effects artist. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> and I'm joined as ever by my lovely co-host. Sam Ashurst and I'm a director, sort of. Um, uh, I've, I've made a short film, a music video and a feature film. So that's, that's a hell of a curve. That's almost all of it. Today we are doing this podcast right now. And it is about the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension from 1984. A film which I am, again, very concerned about Dan having seen it <laughs> for the first time in the past uh, week or so. Yeah. Um, uh, for those of you who listen to these in order, uh, this is being recorded directly after our Phantom of the Paradise episode. Yes. From last time. And they're both first time watches uh, for me. And they're both favourites of Sam's. They're both Sam's choices. So Sam thought I wasn't going to like, or was worried I wasn't going to like Phantom of the Paradise. Correct. Quite liked it. Didn't love it. But yeah. I see what the appeal is. Yeah. He was similarly, I think, worried that I wouldn't like uh, Buckaroo Banzai, blah, blah, eighth dimension. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be completely honest, I don't think I would have made it all the way through it if we hadn't been doing it for the podcast. I knew it. I knew it. Um, yeah, I mean, it does kind of sag a bit in the middle, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> all right, so... Um... Kind of the the main reason I wanted to do this one wasn't to put um, Dan through torment. Um, it was because, as we kind of mentioned last time, um, this is kind of heavily referenced in, in Ready Player One, this film. Uh, and it kind of makes sense. Um, this was a geek culture movie before geek culture really existed on film um, in, in, in that way, with kind of a million different concepts coexisting, often in a single character. And so there's the Ready Player One aspect there and it's also interesting in that the shared love of bonsai is, is one of the things that connects the two romantic leads in ready player one because i think you can tell quite a lot about someone by how they feel about this film um, <laughs> okay so here's my here's not, in a, not in a judgment no no, no not a, at all a, but here's yeah. my here's my problem with this and i think this is probably going to be a podcast about bucker banzai and ready player one like it's gonna Ooh, it's gonna be they're gonna be linked throughout yeah so I watched Ready Player One relatively recently and I watched it after having watched Buckaroo Banzai for the first time oh, okay. like a day or so before. Oh, wow. Um, and I wanted to catch Ready Player One while it was still at cinemas. I hadn't seen it yet. And when that's, that moment happens in the film where mm. he choose, he's flicking through his different costumes and he, he chooses to go with Buckaroo Banzai, I was like, okay, this is why we're doing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> this yeah, is yeah, why yeah, we're doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as I said last time about Phantom of the Paradise where I feel that a lot of the enjoyment and the attachment and the affection for those, the, you know, certain types of film are related to when you saw them. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I didn't see Never Ending Story until quite late in my life, and it's dumb. I don't care about Never Ending Story. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's a terrible sub Henson's nonsense fest. <laughs> and um, just to provide... If you want to cry at a horse dying, play Shadow of the Colossus, which, by the way, why the fuck wasn't Shadow of the Colossus referenced in Ready Player One when they ran the full gamut of everything else? Well, ah, anyway, <laughs> um, just just to provide a slightly different perspective uh, on on uh, Never Ending Story, I used to be obsessed with this film um, <laughs> to the extent that um, my sister, who is uh, an author, um, Scarlett Thomas, one of her early 
pieces of writing uh, when I was very young, and as was she. Um, she started writing me letters um, from the Luck Dragon in Neverending Story and leaving them under my pillow um, to sort of give it an extra element of magic. She would write each uh, individual um, uh, letter within each word in a, a different coloured pen because um, that I feel like that's what a magical creature would do. Sounds exactly like the kind of borderline pedo stuff that the Luck Dragon would get up to. I do not trust that wonky-faced asymmetrical man. However, um, my sister uh, had to stop writing me those letters, which were lovely and sweet and have now been slightly tarnished by uh, Dan's, um, let's put this in quotes, joke. Um, Yeah, uh, she eventually had to stop writing the letters because um, I got so scared that if the luck dragon existed, that also meant that that fucking wolf also existed. (laughs) And it was probably coming to get me. So um, so she stopped writing the letters. And that's actually a pretty good metaphor for my life in general. I think, anyway. <laughs> I, I, I would like to say, I think that what your sister was doing was very sweet. Yes. I don't trust the luck dragon. Good. I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad we made that clear. Good. Okay, right. So uh, back to Buckaroo Banzai. So yeah, anyway, what I was saying was, yes. uh, if you were exposed to these films when you were young, then you yeah. react to them like you did to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to that. And, and you develop... Like nostalgia is very, very a big deal. To jump back to one of the extras on um, Phantom, in the uh, conversation between Del Toro uh, and Paul Williams, yes, uh, oh, which is a great extra, which is a really good extra. Del Toro says, and I think he's quoting someone, but I can't remember who says, "We're all born with nostalgia. You don't have to have lived to experience nostalgia. Right. There's always an innate feeling there." And I do think that both of these films uh, rely quite heavily on when you saw them. And because of that, I don't believe for a single second that anyone will care about Buckaroo Banzai by the time we get to the point in the future where Ready Player Player One (laughs) takes place. Oh, I see, right. Neither of those two, like, I don't know. I mean, I've... I mean, you'll be surprised. Like this, this film does have a massive cult following. It really does. And like uh, talking to Paul McAvoy recently, I said that we were doing Buckaroo Banzai, and his face lit up, and he's like, "Oh, I love that film." And he had a similar sort of. He highlighted something that I was going to highlight, which is that um, the end credit sequence is one of the 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 best thing about the film. Best one of the best end credit sequences ever. It makes me so fucking it's, happy. Well, it's the menu on the disc. Yeah, and when I put yeah, the disc yeah. in and that started, I'm like, you know what? I'm in. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm 100 over. This, yeah, this yeah. is going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah. And then I had to wait all the way through the film for that. Yeah. And I'd already seen it on the credits largely, mm. and yeah, no, well, not not not, <laughs> not not largely. It does no. go on for quite a long time. Yes, it does. Uh, and they've obviously used bits without titles on them. Yeah, to be able exactly. To put the menu together. Oh, but, it's so good. Um, and for me, sort of. One of the elements of, of nostalgia, um, one of the feelings this film gives me, and I, and I will admit that, that re-watching it for this, I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> How, like, what is this? Because Dan texted me to say, oh, I haven't seen it before. And I, so I was kind of watching it through those eyes and I was like, oh, how is he going to feel about this? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, for me, this, this is a, a, a comic book movie before, in the, in the days, I mean, you know, there are some listeners that have been only alive when there's been comic book movies, but because um, there are just so many now. But uh, back then, there weren't any comic book movies that kind of gave me the same feeling I got from reading comics. Um, this film is very much like some lost Grant Morrison comic book that they've adapted. It, How it, will it, Grant it, feel about that? Um, 
no, I, I think Grant Morrison probably likes this film. I mean, it, it, it involves so many things that he's interested in, like the multiverse stuff. And in his very sort of earliest days of his career, he, um, he contributed uh, in the late 70s to a, a comic called Near Myths, um, where he, he created a character called Gideon Stargrave. And yeah, the, the first story was called Gideon Stargrave in the Vatican Conspiracy. Um, <laughs> and, and weirdly, the, the, the comic that it appeared in was, was cancelled after issue five. And uh, it, it, the last story ended with a teaser panel um, for uh, another Gideon Stargrave um, story. Gideon Stargrave will return. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Much like much like Buckaroo uh, Banzai, Banzai does. Banzai ends with that teaser. Maybe Kevin um, Smith can make that as well. Well, <laughs> I actually really loved the, that extra where Kevin Smith's interviewing um, Weller and Lifgal. Like, I think it's really yeah. sweet, and they're clearly both very proud yeah, of and the he's, film. And, and yeah, that's the thing. Like, okay, so again, obviously, we watch these as a I watch these as a sort of a duet. Yeah. Uh, but talking about how much fun, obviously, it looked like everyone was having on Phantom. They were obviously having a huge amount of fun on Com- this as well. Completely. But the difference being that while they were actually just acting through illness on Phantom, migraines and fevers, and yet it looked like they were having fun, on this they obviously were genuinely having fun, but it felt like that thing where you meet a group of friends who are a different social circle of one of your friends, and you're thinking, we have so much in common, we get on so well. Why do you like these people? These people are the worst. I hate them. These are awful people. And But you're then stuck on a night out or a, a weekend away with these insufferable fools. And as much as I like the canon of almost everybody involved in... It's an incredible cast. It's oh, such an amazing cast as well. Yeah, a- any film that has Christopher Lloyd, Vincent Ciavelli and Dan Hedger all playing communist aliens is all right with me. Yeah, Ciavelli's incredible in it. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, but I just... Yeah, I don't know. Like it just it never clicked with me. I just found everything annoying. <laughs> but yeah, on on the fun sort of topic, there's a, a lovely there's loads of really nice extras on this disc and there's a really nice sort of featurette from around the time um the film was released and you know, it's got a young Clancy Brown like basically grinning and saying um you know, this film is the most fun I've had in a long time and I've had a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, like, that's it, though. Like, they were having an amazing time, but that didn't mean I was having an amazing time. It's, yeah, I, don't I, know. I, 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 can, I can totally see that. I that's, mean, but I know. do find it a very interesting film. Yeah. I think there's a, lot, there's a lot there, and it obviously is influential on a lot of people. Yes. Although I think it's probably influential, but not necessarily particularly borrowed from. Yeah. Um, for well, reasons actually, that I would say, you, like, people can take m- moats from it, specks of dust from the storm that is this very disorganised movie and go, I love this, I can take this and turn it into something else. But no one's, I don't think anyone's taken like big noticeable chunks from it. I mean, we're sort of going to drift into my recommendations based on this film now, but I think they live... Well, um, fuck, okay, this first time we've ever had a double-up recommendation. Uh, well, and that, that's because it is so clearly inspired by this film. I mean, this was made in 1984, They Live was made in 1988, so... Um, you know, I, I can very much see John Carpenter seeing this film and going, oh, that's a good concept. I'm going to make a whole film about that. So, and, and interesting that there's another kind of John Carpenter connection in that it's the same writer as Big Trouble in Little China, which yeah. is also an Arrow, um, which feels like a Mike Lee film compared to this. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know. Yeah, like so. But I'm I'm very glad I've seen it. Mm. I don't I don't feel like anything in the film world has made more sense because I've seen it. I don't feel like it's been influential to that level. Mm. Um, but it's very interesting to see. Well, I mean, for a start, I'm just happy to see more Lithgow. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm happy to see more Goldblum. Like, you know, all of these people are actors I adore. Totally. And it's really nice to see them doing more stuff. I also don't like Earth Girls Are Easy, but it's got Jeff Goldblum in it, so I've, yeah. I've seen it. Like, it's actually, that's a that's an interesting connection. Like, this and that are sort of slightly connected as well. <laughs> Definitely, I feel yeah, like yeah. they're super misfired sci-fi, <laughs> sci-fi comedies. Yeah. And, and, so, like we were talking about musicals last time, yeah. and musicals are a slightly hard sell for me. Sci-fi is quite a hard sell for me as well. Yes. But I like like dark, sad sci-fi that doesn't have rocket ships and ray guns. Mm-hmm. I like it when it could only work within that structure, and it has to be sci-fi to work, rather than with a little bit of very simple retooling. It could just be a completely different... Like, it could be a different genre. This doesn't have to be sci-fi. There's nothing in here that had to be sci-fi. And to make it sci-fi with some pretty bottom-of-the-barrel special effects is... I think that is bonkers. I think that statement is bonkers. No. That, that this didn't have to be sci-fi. Yeah. You strip out the sci-fi elements. Strip what, what is it? Well, but you could have them being, uh, like, another nation, like on Earth. You just make up a, a, a an Eastern European country that's no. fighting for, for control of a weapon. Or, like, all of those things can exist in... Other, also, probably not to my no, taste. Like, I, I, no, I think that would remove quite a, a sort of a very significant element of the film. And one of the things that sort of really makes it appeal to me, which is that, you know, it is this mishmash of all of these different things. And Buckaroo Banzai himself is, what is he, is a race car driver, a master surgeon, a Jet rock fighter, star. fighter, a rock star, an a inventor, samurai. A warrior. Yeah, exactly. And he was inspired by Da Vinci, Jack Cousteau, Albert Einstein and Adam Ant. which and is Elia Kazan. Which is, <laughs> which is ridiculous. So that that's a very good joke, Dan. Um, no, they say Elia Kazan. Do they? Yeah, he's, he's specifically referenced as one of the three original references for the character. Oh, I didn't. I didn't yeah, I yeah, didn't it's Kazan, Cousteau and Adam Ant. I mean, that's the a first very, three. That's a very good joke on their part, then. Yeah, and, and <laughs> so yeah, I think like you know, it's a million different ideas struggling to be contained in one movie. Um, loads of great lines and, and concepts, and I think the more you watch it, the more you pick up on all of these. It's a very quotable film, and apparently the the writer Rauch wrote several um, Banzai scripts before this one. And then he acted as though they'd all be made into movies. Um, yeah, so well, on the audio commentary, they're kind of talking about it as though Bucker is a real man and that well, they've been given the, licence to adapt his life story. Yeah, this, this is a joke. I don't know if you managed to dig into all the extras. I can't imagine you did. If I did you almost all of them. Right. Um, did the, the one that was... Um, and that's not a criticism. No, it's all right. Why would you watch every single extra for a film that you didn't really like? But um, I prefer the extras to the film by a country mile. The extras are great. Oh, they really are. Especially yeah, like, you this know. is a film I would recommend the disc of to yeah. someone who wasn't keen on the film because the Lithgow interview is absolutely fantastic. The um, the the old making of yeah the the archive making of w- which takes you in like as a special effects artist seeing inside the Berman studio exactly is amazing yeah. and what one of the things I thought was really interesting um, was that the makeup designer Bari Drebund mm. Bari Drebund this was her in 1984 this was her fourth project that she'd worked on it was her first credit as a makeup supervisor obviously the makeups were made by the Berman studio who are like one of the 
like the Godfather Studios in LA. They've yeah. been around forever. They're a family of effects people. Mm. By her, the by the time she did her, her next credit, mm. which was the next year when she was quoted, credited as the makeup creator for Sloth on the Goonies, right? Her surname had changed to Berman. Oh wow! <laughs> wow. Um, but one of the one of the interesting things in that old uh, making of is that they've made all these amazing makeups and the sculpts are actually really nice. And yeah. But then they ran out of money and they couldn't have Rob Berman on set to apply them anymore. So they just handed them to whoever. And that's why you get these appalling versions yeah, where they're just like asymmetrical and falling off the face and just like awful. I mean, again, when I first watched it, I, you know, I found that part of the charm. But that's one of kind of and I was actually going to reference that that making of um, because obviously the, the commentary is continuing the the, yeah. the, the the joke that they make in that that you know yeah. it's being beamed from this institute um, <laughs> I and, find and, all so tight <laughs> yeah I mean I did you know I, I like it in the feature app but in the commentary I found it slightly annoying because it's like well, it, does, it, it stops it them from work. being able to talk about the film in the same way that you'd want them to as exactly well. I mean they still do they yeah, still do they cover a lot and it's a but, decent commentary but there's always that sort of element uh, always that sort of farce farce exactly <laughs> and yeah no I, I really liked the sort of the, the, the makeup stuff and but but going back to what you're saying about how you know it didn't look great I found it kind of sad when um, when the director when uh, Richter talks about how oh it's such a shame that you know these these prosthetics and these props look so great, you know, when you're holding them in your hand, but you just can't make them look that way on camera. And I was thinking it probably can. <laughs> yeah, you really can, mate. <laughs> you, you definitely can. Um, and it's his directorial debut, isn't it? Uh, he, yeah. And he only directed like two or three things, a couple of TV and, things oh, and oh, this. Oh, God, yeah. But he had um, an Oscar as a writer. Yeah, yeah. He wrote Brubaker and got an Academy Award for it. Like, I feel like he should have known better. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and my favourite, favourite behind-the-scenes story involves um, Jordan, Cronenworth do you know this the the Blade Runner DP um, no. so um, he basically he, he was hired to shoot the film and there's only one scene he shot in the film <laughs> can you can you tell what it is knowing that he's the Blade Runner DP uh, uh, this might be an unfair is question is there a scene where they've made a cheap set look really good by putting loads of hanging plastic all over it <laughs> basically what is the best looking scene in the film I guess is what I'm asking and it's the one that I... It was always my favourite scene. And I know, don't know, man. You're just going to have to tell me. It is uh, the gig. Um, the gig scene where... Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's it's interesting. I, so I don't think I would have gone to that. It is, but it's a... But to be honest, I kind of assumed that was a location and that was the lighting they had. No, like, yeah. That, that it, was... did, it does feel different, but it's also tonally very different in a lot of other ways as yeah. well. Because it's the only real time we address that bit. Yeah. And it does smack of someone who's go, who goes, oh, I've got a a whole uh, universe here and here's a little bit of it. Yeah. And and this is a window into this whole thing and then you go around to his apartment and then the whole wall is covered in like sketches and drawings <laughs> and he hasn't washed. <laughs> so basically, yeah, that, that scene uh, has made it into the film. Nothing else did because he was fired because he'd been told not to make it look like Blade Runner and the director felt that he was making it look too much like Blade Runner. And in my opinion, <laughs> that's quite a good thing. Oh. <laughs> um, it's a, such a shame you can't make these things look good. Get out of here, you're making this stuff look too good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the other thing is that like, it's a really crisp disc. Like When those logos oh, yeah. come up at the front, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. 
and uh, watching the like horrible old VHS archive stuff of Berman talking about the makeup, and he puts on one of the foam rubber gauntlets uh, for the aliens, and he's like, and this is one of the hands, and it's like, oh, that looks quite nice, mm. through an, a fog of 80s VHS grain, mm. and then you get it up onto... Yes, exactly. Uh, up yeah, onto yeah. a Blu-ray on a, on a seven-foot screen, um, and it's like it suffers from. I think we've talked about this before. Yeah. You know, the red shoes syndrome, where yeah. you, you can see all the bobby pins and the brush strokes and the makeup, and it's yeah, like yeah. it's kind of not how they thought it was going to be seen. Yeah, and and sort of just off the back of that sort of uh, criticism about you know him him making it look too much like Blade Runner and being fired. The one thing I will say is maybe. You know, the direction is very straight, let, let's put it that way. Um, it's kind of shot almost like a documentary without too many dynamic camera moves. And I wonder if that was a choice um, because there's so much madness in the script and if it had been over-stylized, it, maybe they felt it would have been too much. I think that's probably what it needs, but maybe they thought it was too much. I don't know. And I like, you know, I like the design of the spaceships. I think they're kind of interesting. The, the spaceships are lovely, but then they're, ro- again, from the extras, yeah, you yeah. can see how gorgeous the sculpts were oh, totally, and the designs yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. And I love that there's an actual consistent aesthetic running yeah, through the, everything. The that's organic, such an, the, the, you can tell that these people are good designers. The underwater life. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the sort of the, the kelp egg sacks underneath these like beautiful fronded spaceships and yeah. the, the coral mothership and all oh, this I kind of stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. lovely. And then some of the worst superimposition you've ever seen puts that spaceship in the sky and it's essentially like a featureless black shape because yeah. it's been underlit on the blue screen and yeah. like really cack-handedly like moved through the frame in post. It just, yeah, it just, the whole thing just was bad. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think we're going to, we're going to end it on, on that uh, revelation, but um, for any Buckaroo Bunzai fans out there, and I'm sure there are many of you, this is a lovely disc. And like Dan said, the extras are worth the purchase alone. Yeah. Um, I, w- I would genuinely say it's actually still worth a, a look. It's, yeah. it's, it does, it feels a little bit like finally figuring out an in joke. Uh, watching yes. this for the first time in right. your late 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, but also, it's obviously very dear to a lot of people. Yeah. I'm sorry to all of them that I wasn't into it. Um, right. one of the We're very, used to it. One of the very first messages you, we ever got... You suits. When Arrow put up their uh, their first Facebook post about the podcast, when they mentioned our Bow with Crystal Plumage uh, episode, first episode on Facebook, mm. uh, 38 weeks ago... Mm. The first comment was Jeremy Thomas saying, if Dan Martin doesn't bring in the pig for their opinion on Buckaroo Banzai, I am unsubscribing. Oh, well, we've, so lost, we've lost someone. Jeremy can come back now. We've talked about Buckaroo Banzai. Hopefully the uh, Sam liked it enough for the two of us. Pig liked it. Pig loves rocket ships. <laughs> we've covered that. <laughs> Pig's very into rocket ships. Great. Um, well, um, should we go into recommendations based on this film? Um, I will start this time because I've already slightly gone into it and, um, you know, I, I feel like uh, Dan may need a bit more time. I do. Yeah. So uh, if I make any jokes and he doesn't laugh, that's because he's on his phone. I'll try not to make any jokes, though. When I talk about <laughs> They Live uh, from 1988, this is obviously inspired by Buckaroo Banzai, um, John Carpenter, Definitely saw this movie. Um, you know, he worked. He went on to work with the writer on Big Trouble in Little China, as we mentioned previously. And uh, if you haven't seen They Live, there's a chance there's some of you out there who haven't. Um, it's tonally 
very different. It's still funny um, and very quotable, lots of great one-liners and so on. But it's more of a kind of paranoid conspiracy science fiction thriller um, in which uh, a man, uh, through the magic of sunglasses, uh, realises that um, the world has been taken over by aliens. Um, And for anyone who's seen Banzai, you'll know that there is some sort of shots of aliens who appear to be normal and then you know cut to the next shot and you see that they're actually alien and that's the element i feel inspired john carpenter but um it's for me it's in probably my top five carpenters they live um it's one of his best um like pretty much all of his films it was underappreciated and underseen at the time um but similar to bonsai which you know made back half of its budget partly because 20th century fox didn't really market it in any kind of way they sort of watched it and went what the fuck is this fair enough um and yeah so uh they live available on blu-ray a beautiful blu-ray and if you haven't seen it my goodness i am jealous of you dan what is your first recommendation? Well, it was going to be They Live. I think it's amazing <laughs> we've got this far through without having a double up. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We've talked about this before. We don't check these with each other ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, and it was only because you acknowledged earlier that you were going to do it that we haven't hit quite such a, a dead end. Uh, my first one's going to be Critters. Oh, nice one. Fantastic. Uh, which That's feels, a great recommendation. Feels, in fact, maybe it's going to be Critters 2. <laughs> because Critters 2 was a massive flop and then has sort of... And they thought it was going to be a big deal. Yeah, and yeah. It, and it didn't, it underperformed. And then it's got kind of a culty following, uh, not that dissimilar to Buckaroo Banzai, although not nearly as beloved as Buckaroo Banzai. I prefer Critters. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think Critters is, is up there in terms of how much it's loved. I think it's got. Oh, yeah, no, I, I mean specifically Critters 2, because Critters oh, 2, because they, they right, put yeah, quite yeah. a lot of money into Critters 2. They thought sure. it was going to be a bigger thing than it was. Yeah, yeah. And then it just underperformed horribly. The kids didn't care. <laughs> I watched Critters when I was maybe five or six, something like that, like when I was very young, the first yeah, yeah. Critters. And um, this fits into a theme of which I've, I think, yeah, I brought up on this podcast and I've brought up on the evolution of horror um basically when i was younger i was a massive coward um and <laughs> i saw critters and it scared me so much like i i couldn't sleep for weeks after watching the first critters two scenes freaked me out the most two amazing scenes one the melty yeah the, <laughs> when, when he's sort of becoming the skull yeah, and all yeah. that stuff which is a great effect um, or at least it was. I've only ever watched Critters once. It's a very, it very so fun much. effect. I right, would okay, say. <laughs> right. I only watched it once when I was uh, six because uh, it scared me too much to revisit. Maybe I'll do that one day. But anyway, and the other bit in that film is where he's turning the radio off. Do you remember that scene where the critter keeps popping up to? Oh. <laughs> I, I really, yeah, I really like Critters. Critters is really fun, yeah, and great. I feel like obviously it's not as crazy and idea soupy as Buckaroo Banzai. No. But I feel like tonally it's kind of what uh, it Banzai feels like a great, Yeah, it yeah. feels like a, a, a good connected movie. Definitely, definitely. Um, okay, so my next recommendation, there is no chance in heaven or hell that Dan and I have another clash because <laughs> I am going to recommend The Perils of Gwendolyn in the Land of the Yik Yak from 1984. Is that what <laughs> no, you've got on your... It is not, okay. no. So, released in uh, the same year as Buckaroo Banzai, um, and this actually, rather than 
being um, uh, an attempt to do a comic style movie this, this is a, a comic book adaptation uh, albeit a series of bondage comics so a bit weird but um, it's basically a French Indiana Jones ripoff um, with female leads and a similar sort of bonkers feel um, because it is an adaptation of these bondage comics there's some weird stuff in there um, tonally it's all over the place like sometimes it's like a family movie other times it's, it's very much not uh, but it is really fun and I can't believe someone made it and um, yeah it's got a great ending um, yeah uh, the perils of Gwendolyn in the land of the yik yak are there other Gwendolyn movies no I don't think there are I mean, this is this is otherwise known as Gwendolyn. Much, just yeah, okay, all right. Much, much in the way that just, people yeah. just say Buckaroo Banzai. Banzai. Yeah, no, but fair enough. I wanted to use I know the full title yeah, no, because it, it works in that context as well. Dan, next recommendation. So my backup recommendation, yes, uh, from 1982, oh, two yeah. years uh, before Buckaroo Banzai, is a comic book adaptation. Nice. Uh, called Creepshow. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, great. Yeah. Which is uh, a film I saw at probably about the same age that you saw Buckaroo Banzai. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I've always had a, a huge affinity for. Uh, it's, not, it's not Romero's best film. No. It's not Stephen King's best film. No. It's a great film. Stephen King's best performance. Is it Stephen King's best <laughs> performance? Or would you say that Sleepwalkers is better? I mean, Sleepwalkers, I mean, that's, like, how could he not? But he's kind of acted off the screen by some other horror greats, though. So yeah, oh, what a sequence. What but a yeah. sequence. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely love it. Um, yeah, that creep is a show. Great and show. it is it's the most comic booky of the comic book movies. Yeah. Because it has pullbacks to frames, turning pages, mm. like all that kind of stuff. Totally. Kind of, a lot of the stuff I wanted to happen in Deadpool, to be honest. Yeah. Given that Deadpool is a fourth wall aware comic book character who can tear through pages to see what's gonna happen on the next page and you know, that kind of thing. I really wanted them to have him leave the cell frames like an old like Bugs Bunny cartoon, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Like become aware of the fact that he was in the movie. Yeah, there's that amazing. And there's um, nods to it. But... There's that amazing Daffy Duck cartoon, isn't yeah. there, where he sort of rubs himself out. Yeah, he races himself. That would have been so good. Like that kind of stuff. And I'm hoping that there's still time to see that kind of. I thing. I think it's a real shame that um, comic book movies just do not bother with with that kind of stuff at all. I know, like Ang Lee did it in in Hulk um, with the sort of the the different yeah. frames and stuff. And God, man, I'd love to see not to bang on about Brian De Palma for the millionth time, but <laughs> I would love to see him do a comic book movie. But um, well, I'm, I'm, st- I'm holding out hope that the, the, the fourth wall stuff will start cropping up in the Deadpool franchise. If two, yeah. I'm hearing mixed things about number two, yeah. um, but if it does well and they're allowed to keep going, I'm, I can't, what I hope is it does well enough to get a third one, but not well enough that they give it a huge amount of money so that they're allowed to start dicking about again. Because mm-hmm. I suspect that that's the problem with two, is that mm-hmm. it costs more money and therefore more people have to sign off on stuff and it starts to have that slightly homogenised feel that a lot yeah. of the new superhero movies watch yeah uh, superhero superhero movies have uh, there's a there's a fan thing online uh, like a sort of a, a suggested sequence for the avengers movie that eventually has deadpool turn up in it when, oh, when yeah. that finally happens yeah um and it's deadpool knowing that because he's outside of his own movies uh, he, and he's in a PG thirteen. He can't swear, mm-hmm. but but like he'll get one swear mm-hmm. because it's a PG thirteen. So they can have one middle level swear. Mm-hmm. So he makes a point of wanting to save it up for a big moment. Mm, and good. then Tony Stark uses it, and he's furious. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's a great idea. So yeah, like stuff like that, like form playing is really nice. And yeah. I think that Creepshow, you know, you know, 
a much simpler way does yeah. a lot of that with Definitely. It. it's pulling in and out of the comic book and the Savini cameo at the end where he's the bin man and he's yeah. talking about look they've already taken the he's got his finger literally through the comic book that the rest of the movie has taken place in yeah, yeah. and they are the through story like that's yeah, yeah. yeah there's some really lovely stuff in there yeah it's really fun so I'm yeah. sure you've all seen Creepshow but watch it again well you know people probably have all seen They Live but I think it's still recommended oh absolutely it's, it's still worth recommending these things because um you know, there may be one listener out there who hasn't seen these films um, because we're old, Dan, and these films are, are, are old. So, um, you know, these are like the equivalent to like 60s films when we were young. Yeah, I um, guess. It's kind of crazy. But all right, let's move on to films we watched in the past couple of weeks. I will start. Can I can I make a request? Yeah. Uh, I want to do my two back to back. So if you do, if you start and then I'll do my two because they're a double bill. Fine. And then you do. Is that okay? That's totally cool. fine. Go. Yeah, yeah. So, um, my first film from the past couple of weeks um, is an amazing film called The Grey, starring <laughs> Liam Neeson. Had you not seen it before? I hadn't seen it before. Oh. So the reason I watch this is basically I, I don't know if you've listened to this, but um, the Pure Cinema podcast has been. Um, doing John Carpenter recently. Yeah. So they did these two big podcasts, uh, one on the early stages of his career, one on the later stages. And so after listening to the first one, which covered The Thing, which obviously, you know, we are quite big yeah. fans of and we appear on the Arrow Blu-ray yeah, disc of. Um, and uh, one of the guys recommended, they, they do double bills, basically. And they recommended that, you know, if you like The Thing, then it's similar to us, actually. Anyway, if you like The Thing, um, then you'll also like The Grey. And I was like, The Grey? The film where Liam Neeson punches a wolf. There's a lot of snow. Um, There is a lot of snow. (laughs) And I thought, is it just because there's a lot of snow? But the way he talked about The Grey and and the fact that, like, both of these guys made such good recommendations up until that point, I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to have to watch The Grey. I saw The Grey at the cinema. So (laughs) I watched The Grey. Well, it just didn't appeal to me. Like, it was in that sort of um phase of Liam Neeson's Post taken to exactly where you know I'm 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 going to find you I'm going to kill you I'm going to eat you um in this <laughs> one um and I've like got the, all these miniatures and the tra- exactly and the trailer sort of made it look like a completely different film so anyway I watched it uh, got it on Blu-ray watched it just off the back of this podcast and holy fucking shit I loved it so much. <laughs> like, um, it's not what they advertised at all. It's um, this amazing existential exploration of death. And the wolves are kind of a metaphor for impending death. But, you know, it, and it's one of these wonderful films where there's loads of ways to interpret it. Um, you could almost give it a slightly fight club interpretation if you wanted. Um, I won't go too much into that because that is a spoiler. But... Yeah, it is just a magnificent film about facing death, about letting go, about grief, about all of these things that, you know, I'm normally kind of very interested in in films. Um, And then I listened to the audio commentary and it's one of the best audio commentaries I've ever heard because it's um, Joe Carnahan, it's... um, and it's, it's the writer and, um, and and basically their uh, reason it's so good is they start it and you hear the glasses tinkling, right? <laughs> and, uh, like if you hear if you hear you know tinkling it's uh, you know ice on glass at the it's beginning. ice on glass we're, we're enjoying um, some fine scotch as we record this commentary and oh boy are they because as it progresses 
Joe Carnahan, who's not really backwards and coming forwards usually. Yeah. But um, on this commentary, he is so honest about loads of stuff. Um, oh, I'll have to give this a listen. I'll give you. I'll give you an example. Um, in the it's kind of end credits, a producer's name comes up, and uh, Carnahan basically says, "Yeah, sorry, buddy, you don't deserve to have your name on this movie." And kind of <laughs> goes into a bit of a rant about that. Um, but yeah, but it's not just him saying things that he probably shouldn't say. It is. Um, goes so in depth in, in terms of how they made the movie, in terms of what decisions they made, you know, why they chose, um, you know, oh, I'm not going to say that because that's also a spoiler, but it's probably in the trailer. It is in the trailer. Why they chose to to leave the camera in the plane oh, at yeah. a pivotal moment, which is a, a wonderful explanation. Um, yeah, there's all sorts on this commentary. So not only do I recommend The Grey, the film, I recommend The Grey, the Blu-ray because of that amazing commentary. Dan, you're going to do a double bill. I am, yeah. I enjoyed that. Um, I enjoyed The Grey a lot, actually, but I haven't revisited it. So and that, fucking I, good. I love a slightly drinky audio commentary. Yeah, So exactly. I'm definitely going to give that a, give that a go. Um, yeah, I want to do this as a double bill because I... Like so, the first recommendation I watched um, last week. Uh, it's it's going to be out cinemas by the time this comes out, uh, but it will be out on Blu-ray soonish, and I think it's coming out on Arrow or Arrow Academy. Okay, I didn't know this when I saw it, uh, uh, and it's called The Third Murder. Okay, uh, and I I love it. Uh, just to go back to the grey very quickly, mm. I, it feels like it could be a Japanese film. Like tonally, yeah, that sort of that cold, sad existentialism, very, existentialism, very much, is, yeah, it feels like a sort of a, a ponderous thing. And there's even a sort of slightly Mayor y kind of feel about his uh, the character's approach to his own mortality, which I think is really great. Absolutely, the third murder is an absolutely wonderful movie. Uh, it's ostensibly a courtroom drama. Right, I'm on board. Uh, it's a Slightly over two hours, Japanese oh, procedural God. courtroom drama. Oh, baby. Chef's kiss. Starts with <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, my, my double bell is about five hours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, given that the same weekend, uh, the, the, the weekend of the, of the week that I watched these, I also back-to-backed Batman versus Superman and... Holy shit. Um, Justice League. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck it, come on then, let's get these out of the way. Really like Batman versus Superman. Yeah. Did not like Justice League. Correct. Yeah. That's the correct response. There you go. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, Batman versus Superman, pretty fucking dumb, but very yeah. enjoyable. Very exactly. Enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, I completely yeah. agree. I didn't watch the long version. Watch the, the Long short. version's great. It makes it slightly less dumb. Okay. Slightly less. I mean, it's still very stupid at the end. Of like course. That, that, but I knew about that turning point. Like, that had been sport for me. Yeah, and yeah. I'm kind of glad it had been because it meant that it wasn't a disappointment when it happened. I just It was just a thing we had to get past in the narrative. Yeah. I, um, I, I won't spoil it now just in case people don't feel the same way and I'll go, it's not my recommendation. But it's, it's fun. Yeah. It's a, it's a fun, stupid way to spend an after, a weekend afternoon. Correct. Uh, when you've just driven back from Cardiff after 30 days without a day off. <laughs> Justice League, on the other hand, is pretty rubbish. Oh, yeah. Just all over the place. Just stop putting so many characters in things. Yeah. It's Spider-Man yeah, yeah. 3 problems. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. And Any, tonally crazy. Anyway, back, back to back to, to the your, good films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's ostensibly a uh, a guy has been arrested for a murder, robbery, and in Japanese law, whether or not he killed him to take his wallet or took his wallet after he killed him because of an opportunity could mean the difference to to a death sentence because one is a crime of pa- if he killed him for a grudge, 
uh, and then happened to take the wallet afterwards because it was an opportunity he saw, then that's probably not a death penalty because grudges in Japan are seen as human nature and it was a crime of passion and he couldn't help it. Wow. But if he killed him for his wallet, then that's opportunistic and evil and he can go to the chair. It's also not his first time being arrested for murder. He has just come out of prison for a 30-year sentence for a double murder he committed years before. Mm. And one of his defence team is the son of the judge who spared him the death penalty the first time round. Add to that that all of these characters have their own sadnesses going on in life, regrets, time not spent with family, all that kind of stuff. And you've got this perfect storm of Japanese introspection um it's absolutely lovely the performances are incredible mm. it's shot really beautifully mm. it's really really nice mm. um it's pretty bleak and it leaves you feeling pretty exhausted so after that i thought let's watch a different over two hours japanese courtroom movie um so i went back to masayuki suo's uh, i just didn't do it or even so i didn't do it which is a sort of comedy Japanese courtroom drama, mm-hmm. um, slightly longer, at two hours, 23. <laughs> uh, and it's about a young guy who's on the way to a job interview for a job that could change his life. Uh, and he gets hauled in for groping a girl on the train, mm-hmm. uh, which he didn't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are, we are pretty, no, we're, 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 we're led to believe that he didn't do it. We are, right. we are, he refuses it and we are told that we should believe him by mm-hmm. the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the police station... They say, look, just pa- it's a small financial fine. He's missed his job interview already by this point. Right. It's a small financial fine. They're like, just pay the fine and leave. Mm. He's like, no, but I didn't, I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And they're like, just, just pay the fine and leave. Mm-hmm. But I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a matter of conscience to refute this. And so it goes to court, which it never does. I, I love it, these honour-based yeah, legal dramas. It's amazing. It's, it's a and subgenre. It's basically because he realises that this is essentially a, a pay system where gross old men can pay a fine to just grope women on these Japanese, these packed Japanese trains. Mm. Uh, and they know that they'll get nothing more than a rap on the knuckles. No, their name doesn't go in any kind of ledger and they just pay their fine and it doesn't matter. They move on. And he's like, but I didn't do it. And it goes as far as them like rebuilding a train carriage in the courtroom oh my and God. recreating the journey <laughs> to show that he did. it's absolutely wonderful. The same director did probably most famous in the West because there's a Richard Gere movie called Shall We Dance that was based, it was a remake of one of his movies, Oh right, okay. um, which is really lovely. Um, but he also did Sumo Do Sumo Don't, which we watched together. Oh Sam. my god, we didn't watch it together. I watched oh, no, it I, separately, but, but I borrowed I, it yes, from you. Yeah, yeah. And I love yeah. Sumo Do Sumo Don't. It's, it's an incredible an, movie. An extra recommendation. It's fucking amazing. Everything, everything this guy does is incredible. Right. I've never seen a bad film by him. Great. But, but the first film I ever saw by him was this. Was um, I just didn't do it. Uh, or even so I didn't do it I think I've mentioned before if I get to if I'm not working and I get to go to a film festival particularly a film festival with a market like Cannes um, I'm not particularly bothered by all the big red carpet stuff because that's the stuff that I'm going to have an opportunity to see later sure so I'll just go straight to the Eastern European market uh, stalls or the Asian market stalls and I'll be like right what you got yeah Uh, and I went to I think it was Pony Canyon we're putting out, uh, I just didn't do it. Sorry, the reason I keep on stumbling over the name is I've always known it as Even So I Didn't Do It, mm-hmm. which was the English translation that was on their posters and is on my Japanese box set of his films, mm-hmm. but is not the title it's been released on 
in the UK and America. Mm-hmm. So in America, it's called I Just Didn't Do It. Uh, and in England, I think, as well. And, and I said, uh, I'd, I'd really like to... They had a, a standee for this, and it's um, it's the back of a, a young man suited standing in front of a, a group of, of sort of, like, serious-looking people, and it just says, uh, even so, comma, I didn't do it. And uh, and I was like, right, I'm going to watch this. Uh, and I, I said, do you have any screenings of this I could go to? And the nice lady from Pony Canyon said, oh, it's, it's really long. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, it's fine. It's, uh, I don't mind. She's like, it's it's really long. It's very, very long. Uh, and it took a while to convince her that I was actually interested in seeing a two-hour, 23-minute film. Yeah, I mean, that that, that adds uh, appeal for you, doesn't yeah, it? Oh, yeah, it was great. Yeah. It was the same year I saw... Um, I always want to say Love Exposure, but it's not Love Exposure, another very long Japanese film. Oh, my God, uh, Love amazing. Death, the Reiya Hikitamura um craziness movie mm. um which i went to see with jen and she was not particularly pleased with me making a go and see because that's, that's a long movie we are racing through the titles here um we're making uh life hard for nick vesberg who uh does our letterbox account which, yes which thank lists you nick. all of the films that we mentioned on this podcast he recently caught up with himself um, and now we've just now we've hit just some rods for your back, sir. <laughs> yeah, but um, again, once again, thank which you I actually, so much for I actually doing used. That. I can't remember which of these I thought I might have mentioned before. I think it might have been this one. Yeah, I yeah. thought I might have mentioned, so I went through and checked. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I, it's, a, I, it's an amazingly useful resource. Really thank you, is. Nick. Please don't stop doing that. Yeah. Um, right. Should we go on to? Yeah, that, yeah. No, you've got another, haven't you? Bill, isn't it? Yes, that's yeah. my 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 last one. Um, so uh, it is uh, my third Simon Rumbly film in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, I, I went to watch some films um, with Mike Hewitt, who edits this podcast, as well as um, is a very important person at Arrow Video, um, and is also a lovely man. So uh, we had a film day together. Not sure if I'm allowed to talk about some of the films we watched because they are super secret, um, but very exciting. Uh, but uh, before I left, uh, we had a, a long conversation about our mutual appreciation for Simon Rumley. Mike absolutely loves Rumley, and so I was, you know, talking to him about what an amazing experience I had with Fashion Easter, and even more so with Crowhurst. And uh, I said, but I haven't seen Living in the Dead. Uh, but, oh wow! But, but Mike had it, so he lent it to me. Um, and yeah, it absolutely blew me away. Um, uh, without, I'm not going to go into any, um, any, uh, real life stuff, but, uh, I have as, as jolly and as, as cheery a person as I am, I have a fairly dark past, um, in terms of stuff that's, that's, that's happened, uh, in my family. And this is the first film that I've ever seen that properly represents, the kind of psychological state of um, of kind of grief and of very intense shock, if that makes sense. It's one of the darkest, one of the hardest films I've ever seen. Um, and it kind of really put me back in that headspace, which sounds doesn't sound like a reason to, to recommend a film. But actually, I think it's kind of helpful to talk about things in these terms, as kind of difficult as it is. Um, because I think one of the things that film can do um, is that it's not just entertainment, it's not just a distraction, um, it can be a way of processing 
tough stuff. And so, yeah, watching this film completely took me into a different mind state, completely sort of a transcendent experience. It's about stuff that has nothing to do with, um, you know, the stuff that kind of helped me process. But um, it's about uh, a rich lord or a formerly rich lord who's in money troubles. Um, his, his wife is uh, very ill and um, terminally ill, in fact, and... Uh, he has a son who uh, is schizophrenic and so they both need care but he has to leave the house um, to uh, go in search of, of money um, because he's in a dire situation and uh, he he has to leave earlier than expected so the nurse who's going to look after them comes the next day rather than at the same time that he leaves. Unfortunately, his son um, decides that... Um, He's the man of the house now. He's going to look after his mum. And obviously he is not equipped to do this at all. Um, he's sort of... He, he's an adult, but he's permanently in the, a childlike state. Um, and he requires medication. And obviously without someone to sort of look after him, he doesn't take the medication the right way. And it kind of goes off the rails into a very, very dark area um, from, from there on in. And again, Rumley uses... Um, formal techniques and to represent the sort of psychological breakdown of the characters but yeah more than that you know if there's anyone out there who has had kind of you know let's say sudden grief I, I really would recommend watching this film because you know like I say some films can help you um and as tough as this is to watch it did help me so that is my recommendation it was a very personal film for Simon as well wasn't it because it was made very shortly after the death of his parents right and it was yeah. uh, I remember I was doing some bits and bobs for Raindance at the time when this won the Biffa yeah and they were it was very present in the Raindance offices at the time and it's yeah it's a very because it, it's his first feature isn't it from him and no it's not his first feature no it but it's it's yeah I think it's like a turning point yeah. feature yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. where um, you can read his voice is really yeah yeah and it's when he's first started really like definitely when he first started really like exploring that kind of grief mm. and I know that like again it's it's not connected like he, he was very careful not to because obviously after you watch a film like this you read interviews and um he said that he was very careful not to put anything from his real life yeah. into the film so it's not like it's representational in that way but there's something about the pain that's at the heart of it yeah that you know i'm almost on the verge of tears talking about it now that's that's how much it affected me so you know it, it is a tough watch but you know, if there's anyone out there that, that uses film in a similar way to me, then I really recommend picking up The Living and the Dead. Shall we go into extra features? Let's do that. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. There are no extra features. <laughs> Get out. Um, but but uh, we have some letters this it's week. It's a mailbag for, special. For extra features. Dan, would you like to start? Yeah. So first one from Andre Martins, who emailed us uh, to say general thank yous mm -hmm. and to be just nice and supportive, which is always hugely appreciated. And he uh, referenced how tired we were for the last double bill we recorded. Yeah, it says he hopes we got today. some weight, uh, some some rest yeah. uh, during Easter. So thank you for that. He just finished a sort of Blade of the Immortal double bill, watching the uh, the film and uh, listening to the podcast um, to sober up, sober up from the Easter celebrations. <laughs> um, he seemed to enjoy them both. But to get to his question. 
He says, while browsing through the Arrow Shop, I stumbled upon some lovely Italian westerns and realised you guys have not yet talked about one of those. Is it not your kind of genre in general, or is it just by coincidence that you did not talk about one yet? Sam, I'll throw to you in a second. For me, uh, um, I used not to like westerns. I actually quite like westerns these days. Mostly the kind of westerns that Arrow releases. I'm much more into spaghetti westerns as a rule. Uh, but there's some great stuff on Arrow Academy as well. Uh, some really amazing Ar- uh, Western titles on Arrow Academy. But yeah, I've got no problem with uh, with slipping a Western in down the line. I think that's definitely going to be something we do. I mean, the thing is, one film from Arrow every fortnight isn't actually that many. It's taking us a while to wade through. There's so much good stuff to choose from. Exactly, yeah. Um, but yeah if, that's, uh, yeah, if anyone else out there feels like there is an underrepresented genre or director or something, a particular title you'd like us to talk about, then at the very least we can acknowledge it uh, and have some low-end opinions on it before we maybe tackle it in more depth down the line. But yeah, I think a, a Western in the future. Yeah, I mean, uh, I absolutely love Westerns. Yeah. All kinds of Westerns. Um, I mean, I dress like a cowboy. Um, <laughs> normally when I'm going out uh, and being all smart, I put on a cowboy shirt. Um, and yeah, Arrow has released some great ones. Um, my favourite's probably... Well, one of my favourites is on Arrow Academy, a film called The Hired Hand, Hand yeah. which is incredible. Amazing film. And yeah, we will definitely get around to it eventually. There's there's uh, actually an exciting box set um, coming up. Arrow Video are releasing a Sartana box set um, in the next few months. I don't know exactly when it's out, but when it is, how about we do a film from that? Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, so cool. All right, well, I also have... A letter um, from Aaron Masters. Um, He says lots of lovely things, um, but I'm going to hone in on a couple of elements. He says, as a member of the Psychotronic Facebook group, I smile whenever you mention Tony Clark. Donna, who is Tony's wife, comes from my hometown of Colchester. My mum comes from Forest Hill, which I now live near. So I do wonder if one of us is stalking the other. I currently smell of the burnt wood fragrance that is the Wicker Man aftershave. We, this is some deep cuts now, but um, yes, Tony, um, not only does he um, sell film memorabilia and, and movies and so on, he also uh, came up with uh, a strand of aftershave. Um, Dan, yeah. There's a Wicker Man one. What else? There's, uh, there's, a, a, zom- there's a Jello one and there's a Zombie Flesh Eaters one. Yeah, so um, if you've ever wanted to smell like a zombie, now's your opportunity. I'm going to go back into the letter. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, as stated in the subject, my mind was blown today whilst listening to the Blood and Black Lace podcast. So much so I had to rewind and make sure I hadn't misheard about three times. Um, Even though I've not yet read all of them, I love Scarlett Thomas's book, so I was shocked to hear that she is Sam's sister. Really enjoyed Mr. Wine Popco, and her first three books really spoke to me as I was the same age at the same time. Yeah. That's very nice. <laughs> a little bit self-indulgent of me to read that out. But, you know, we mentioned, That's nice. we mentioned, mentioned my sister Scarlet, earlier yeah. in, in the podcast and stuff. And it's very, uh, uh, it's always lovely to hear that people read her books. Uh, I'm very proud of her. Dan, what have you got next? So this email came in during the recording of the podcast. Uh, nice. Yeah. So there we go. On the clock, 24-7 constantly getting your info uh this comes from someone who hang on don't say constantly getting your info that makes us sound like facebook (laughs) yeah no so obviously we appreciate all of the emails you send and it's very very nice to get to them yeah uh the reason i want to read this one is because 
we've had two films uh, now where last episode and this episode where Sam was dubious about my how much I'd enjoy them and my enjoyment of them spanned a bit to not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this comes from a listener who signs him. His name is Cheese, the big cheese. Nice. Uh, so I don't know his real name, but thank you so much for your email. He uh, just watched Blade of the Immortal. Uh, he says he really didn't like it, uh, sadly. He thought there were too many characters, and although the comedy and gore was effective, um, and there were loads of great friends and foes introduced, um, the long running time couldn't keep up with even longer lists of supporting characters. Some of the problems I had with the film, but what I like from this is that uh, he then signs off with, love the podcast, keep it up. Uh, and what that means is, to me, is that Sam and I having different, differing opinions about these films and more importantly the listeners and us perhaps having differing opinions about these films doesn't stop people being able to enjoy the podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. So that's yeah, a really yeah. nice takeaway for me from that. Um, so yeah, glad you liked it even if the film wasn't to your taste. We hope you um, enjoy the next few. Yeah, and for the next couple will be Dan's choices and we are going to start off with Dan. The Burning, the Burning. by Tony Malum. Yeah. Which has so... a, 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 a particular association with the podcast because yeah. it was at uh, it was a, at an introduction we were doing for a screening of The Burning at the Prince Charles Cinema in London that the podcast was first announced. Yeah, very, very exciting and uh, looking forward to watching that again and especially looking forward to digging into the extras because I think it's quite a packed disc. Yes. So, um, that should be fun. And it's a film that we both like. Imagine yeah. that, the first one for God knows how many episodes. It's been a little while. Yeah, it has. So, um, Still be lots of, lots of places for us to argue. Oh, I'm sure there will. I'm sure <laughs> there will. Um, cool. All right, well, uh, we will see you next time for The Burning. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much for listening. And we promise to be more professional next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.